0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical-free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Uh, This morning, uh, we will be in 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them to the letter 1 John? It's in the back of your Bible. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, I should introduce myself. My name is Tyler Hurst. I'm on the pastoral team here. I serve Journey as the associate pastor, and uh, one of the things that I do is I spend a lot of time thinking about discipleship, and First John is an excellent letter to do that. Uh, This is our seventh sermon on the letter of 1 John, and as we've been working through this letter, we have encountered the following things about what it means to follow Jesus. We have seen that following Jesus comes with participation in joyful fellowship, that it means using the disinfectant of confession to bring forward our defiling sin, The following Jesus brings together intimacy and obedience as mutually reinforcing tandems rather than oppositional forces, as many in our world would have us believe. The following Jesus propels us toward one another in love by Christ's renovation of the commands to love the church, to love the brotherhood. The following Jesus offers us the reality of sonship in the place of doubting. And last week, that following Jesus places us at, at odds with those in our world who love the world and the things of the world, because it sets before us the love of the Father. And as we take up this seventh portion of the letter this morning, we have quite a text before us. Uh, There are several difficult and thorny issues in it. Some of them are cultural, some are personal, some are philosophical or theological, but interestingly enough, all of the issues we encounter in this text are in service of Christian discipleship. Ordinary discipleship, just the ordinary day-to-day life of what it means to follow Jesus. So as we prepare to read the text for this morning, uh, this is the thesis I think we will find in it. I believe that the purpose of this text is that the state of our culture calls us to an earnest and intentional pursuit of Christian discipleship. As I go throughout the sermon, I'll unpack some of those concepts, and uh, we'll fill that out a bit more. Uh, So here's what I want to do as we get started this morning. I want to pray. As we have just been reminded, uh, all that we do is not really us doing it, but it is Christ working in us— And so I want to pray to make sure that we are keeping that before our mind, that it is Christ in us this morning as I preach, as we listen, as we seek to submit ourselves to this text. And then we're going to read the text, and we're going to reflect on this text, seeking to understand how it's communicating its own unique point that is subtly different from the rest of the letter of 1 John. But at the same time, it is needed to be put in the context of the letter in order to properly understand it. So, would you bow with me as we pray and prepare to hear the text? Father in heaven, you abide in us and through us, uh, you work through us uh, by the power of Christ. That as we seek to, uh, as we seek to serve you, as we seek to go about our days, as we seek to follow Christ, we know that. Uh, while we may be tempted to think of this as just an effort, as something driven by the sweat of our brow that we can put more work into, we know that ultimately that every inch we make towards Christ, every step we put in imitating him, uh, we do so by your power. Uh, And so, Lord, we ask as we attempt to unpack this text and understand it this morning, would you continue to give us open and obedient hearts Would you speak through me uh, to the hearts of your people gathered? Would you open our minds to what John has for us this morning, and would you help us see how it is relevant for us as we seek 2,000 years after this letter was written to follow Jesus in the same way that he was encouraging the original readers of this letter to? Father, this morning belongs to you, and it belonged to you long before we woke Uh, but we give it back to you today as an offering, as a tithe, uh, because you are worthy of glory, honor, and worship. So be present and working among us through your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are in the first letter of John. We're going to be in chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, John is at the back of your Bible. You can find the exact page by looking at the table of contents. And if you're looking for the chapters, those are the big numbers on the page. The verses are the little numbers on the page. So you're looking for a big number two. Uh, And it begins this way in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour... As you have heard that the antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they all, uh, but they went out, that it might become plain that they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Whoever is a liar, or who is a liar, but he who denies Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write to you, I write to these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you to abide in him. So if you have been tracking with us in our Prepare for Sunday emails or in our Common Rhythm Guides, which, by the way, if you're not sure what those are, those are two tools that our staff puts together that we put out in order to maximize the discipling effort of what we are doing right now as we gather. We believe that you will experience greater formation, greater discipleship if you think about what you are encountering on a Sunday morning before the first time, uh, before you come into this room and gather and sing. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you might stand and sing and think, I wonder what that song means, because you haven't actually thought about it before, because it's the first time you're encountering it is on a Sunday morning. Well, we created two different tools to help you press what we're doing here together further into your life to be more formative, to have a greater effect on you. So that's our Sunday morning prepare for Sunday email. It usually goes out Wednesday or Thursday. And then the common rhythm study guide, which walks you through what we're doing each week. And if you have been participating in those with us, then you probably know when I said that there are thorny and difficult issues in this text, you probably already knew what they were. But if you weren't tracking with that, my guess is when you heard me read it, a couple of phrases stuck out to you. You might have heard the comments, last days or last hours and antichrist, and they probably caught your attention because those words have a certain valence, they have a certain effect on us because of a Christian culture. And when I read them, your mind might have been filled with images of things that you have thought about or read or seen. And part of that is because we are a people given to spectacle. In the West and in America in particular, we are allured by the visual, the appealing. We like movies with lots of special effects where lots of things blow up. We wanna see big lights big numbers. We think in terms of large and visually appealing things. And because of an evangelical subculture, last days and antichrist might have been words that filled your mind with such images, and so you might have conjured images of apocalypse and images of nefarious global elites making decisions that we lowly Christians either must resist or abide by. But we have to remember that this letter is intended as a letter of encouragement for everyday Christians. For Christians who existed long before the particular empires and powers which govern our world. And John has an important point for them, and in having a point for them, he has an equally important point for us. But we need to cast this passage and its difficulties against the context of John's greater letter. It seems to me that John's primary purpose in writing is discipleship. And so we have to put this section of the letter into the context of John's views of discipleship. As we have been studying the letter, we have come across in our previous six sermons, in the previous six texts, we have come across a number of things John says about discipleship. He links it to a number of verbs. He says that discipleship, following Jesus, in other words— Is about participating in fellowship with one another. That's chapter 1, verse 3. About walking in the lights, chapter 1, verse 7. Confessing our sins, chapter 1, verse 9. Resisting temptation, chapter 2, verse 1. Keeping God's commands, chapter 2, verse 2. Walking as Jesus walked, chapter 2, verse 6. Loving the church or the brotherhood, chapter 2, verse 9. And that the love and that having the love of the Father or loving the Father means opposing the world. Chapter 2, verse 15. And similarly, John speaks: the discipleship has with it objective spiritual realities. There are things that are true of us, though we might not feel they are true at any given point in our Christian life, but whether we feel them or not, they're always true of us. And he says these two things in particular. One of the things that is always true of disciples is that disciples have fellowship with the Father through the Son. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. And the disciples have this fellowship because they abide in Christ, chapter 2, verse 6. And then finally, we can think of, we can think of those first two categories as things that disciples do and what disciples are. And then he has a third category for us, and we can think of this as what disciples know. And he says that this is, disciples know the gospel. They believe the word. That's chapter 1, verse 2. That they know God as both creator, the one who everything you encounter comes from him, and also as father. That in his creation we encounter him as a loving father who gives us all good things. That's chapter 2, verse 13. says that disciples know what sin is and how it is forgiven. That's chapter 2, verse 12. And disciples know that there is an evil enemy who has been overcome. That's chapter 2, verse 13, as well. And so it seems that if we're trying to understand John's concept of discipleship, he puts it broadly into three categories. There are these theological doctrinal truths which disciples know, There are these spiritual realities which disciples experience, whether they feel it or not. And then there are things, active things, that disciples do. They follow through on. There's ways in which following Jesus works itself out practically in their daily lives. Which, if you've been with us for any stretch of the last couple of years, then you probably hear those things, and hopefully you have started to recall the mnemonic that we use here of learning from Jesus, loving like Jesus, and living for Jesus. Because John's categories of discipleship roughly map onto those same three ideas. Now, if you're new with us, I don't want you to get the feeling that you have to articulate discipleship that way. If you've been been in other churches before in your Christian life, then you have probably found other ways churches articulate those exact same concepts. In fact, many sociologists who study the church say those same three things are how they track Christian faith in America, but they use a different mnemonic. Uh, Because evangelicals love alliteration, they use B words. And so they would talk about Christians as people who belong, as people who behave, a certain way, and as people who believe certain things. And so, my point is that when people study discipleship, when people study what it means to be a Christian, they roughly map the Christian life into three different categories. And these three categories are unchanging. They are true at every era and in every time of the Christian life. And they tell us that if we are to be disciples of Jesus, we need to be people who are in pursuit of accurate theological understanding of who God is, what he says about who we are, and what the nature of the world we live in is. Furthermore, if we are truly to be disciples, we need to be people in pursuit of substantive and sacrificial relationships with both God and each other. And finally, disciples are those who align our theology, what we say we believe, with the manner of our life. In particular, we align the manner of our life morally and missionally. We cannot say, in other words, that we, we believe robustly and we resist culture's push away from a Christian sexual ethic on something like, say, homosexuality, unless we also are going to align our lives missionally on what the Bible says about what proper heterosexuality is. And so we must—we can't just simply push back against hot-button cultural issues without also admitting that we need to work on rising immorality within the church itself. We need to align our theology with our practice and be concerned about things like rising rates of premarital sex, cohabitation, and pornography use in those who would claim to be Christians. Likewise, we have to align our theology with what Scripture says uh, about how people get saved. If we want to say that we believe theologically, we strongly believe in the joy of salvation and the love of the Father for where we derive our significance and our meaning, then we cannot allow those in our social circles to be on their own in hearing the gospel. We must live missionally taking the gospel to them, looking for opportunities to share about how Christ has worked in us. Think about our reading in Pastor Jim's prayer this morning. The woman at the well encounters Christ, and what does she do? In having a life-changing encounter with Christ, she takes it back to her village, and it says, many believed on account of her testimony. Why? Because she aligned the theology of what she came to believe about God with the mission of what she understood, her the call on her life to be. She was not a vocational minister, but an average person who was actually in a racially separated group who got saved, but understood that regardless of what her life had looked like beforehand, believing in the man she just encountered meant sharing that message. And so we must work on the alignment of our theology, our morality, and our mission. So we might expand then the thesis statement for this morning, that uh, on Christian discipleship we might say, the state of our culture calls us to an earnest and intentional pursuit of learning from Jesus, loving like Jesus, and living for Jesus. And I think I it should be noted by the way that because there is not an era or a culture in which either of these gets, uh, should be lost or should be downplayed at the cost of another, uh, that these are universal things that we are all always to be pursuing. In fact, when we, uh, when we generally think that we've got one thing nailed down and we don't need to focus on it, so we turn our attention to one of the other three aspects of discipleship, what we end up doing is, rather than solidifying that aspect of discipleship, is releasing a host of pathologies into the next generation. We could walk through church history, and I could explain how this happens era after era in church history, but let me give you one example that many of you might have encountered. In the 1980s and 1990s, there was concern that the church had lost its mission of evangelism and making disciples, because we had spent a previous generation focusing on the building up of theological institutions, because there was a a feeling that culture was drifting away from us as Christians. We looked out at ideas and cultural happenings taking place in Europe, specifically in Germany and in the United Kingdom, coming into America getting concerned about that. We spent a generation building up intellectual theological institutions, uh, which I do not besmirch, I benefited from many of these. Biola University, my alma mater, would be counted among them. But in the response to that focus, there was a focus in the 1980s and 90s on being more missional. And the thought process was, we've gone too doctrinal. We need, to, we need to pull back. We need to create churches where a new generation can come and find uh, a creative, attractive, culturally palatable, low doctrine bar of entry so that they can hear the gospel from the sage on the stage, from the pastor with the training. And so churches tried to become a comfortable place for the lost, Preaching robust doctrinal sermons which dug deeply into Scripture was seen as passé, beyond its time. But now, two to three decades past that time period, what we have seen is that 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 did not give us more robust discipleship, but rather, it turned the next generation, by and large, into guilt-free heretics. Who came into the church hearing a message that your sins are forgiven, and they were willing to take that message of grace, which is good because that comes from scripture, but because it was not paired with a call to follow Christ, there was no repentance of sin, and there was no theological formation. And so as sociologists and theologians studied the next generations, what they found was not affirmation of what Christians had believed for 2,000 years, but what they found was, in fact, a new religion that one sociologist called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, God wants you to be good. Therapeutic, he wants you to feel good. And deism, that God is distant and has little to do with your life. And so the focus on evangelism at the cost of the theology and at the cost of lived discipleship, or what we might call the Christian experience, led to a loss of true Christianity in many churches. What this should tell us is that we need to take, at all times, all three aspects of Christian discipleship seriously. This is why Pastor Jim and I talk about this all the time. This breakdown is being synthetic. That we are, when we isolate these things, theology, life, Mission. when we isolate them from one another, we are doing that as a, uh, in a sort of fake manner in order to see where we need to grow. Because biblically speaking, and I think the letter of 1 John gets at that, all three of these interlock to say if you are theologically growing but you are not on mission, then you have not properly understood the doctrine and the theology. To say that if you are on mission but you cannot tell me who God is, your mission is useless. To say if you are doing those two things, but you are not personally following Jesus Christ, you are simply setting the church up for failure when its leaders and evangelists show a woefully inadequate morality for what Christianity calls us to. We were called to worship a holy God, so too our lives must reflect holiness. It seems to me that these three aspects of discipleship are what are in the foreground of John's letter. As John is writing, he is concerned to communicate the interlocking relationship between these three things, and so he keeps on coming back to talk about abiding and obedience and relationship and fellowship and love and the Father and the Son, and he is connecting these things over and over together, and this is what we might call the foreground of the picture of 1 John. John. But in our passage today, John twists the lens on his camera. He blurs the foreground in order to bring into broad focus that which is in the background, the cultural context into which Christian discipleship takes place. I think he does this because he senses that his audience has questions has concerns, his audience has encountered false teachers, his audience has seen people walk away from the faith, and his audience experiences persecution for what they say they believe, and he needs to remind them that all the things he is talking about, as lofty and spiritual as they might seem at face value, are always done in the earthy reality of day-to-day life as a Christian. And so as he draws the context forward, it is there that then we, th- we encounter these concepts of the last hours and the Antichrists. And we must put these into that proper context lest we get taken with the spectacle of what they might mean. So let's think about each of these for a bit. The last hour. A careful reader of the Old Testament narratives and prophecies will regularly come across Similar phrases, the day of the Lord, in that day, in the last days. These phrases are used in the Old Testament to speak of a time in which God would manifest himself in this world. And in that day, when God would manifest himself, he would come to his people with the offer of salvation, and he would go to those who were not his people with the promise of judgment. But as Jesus came and lived among people, as God manifested himself in the incarnation, the person and work of Jesus Christ, what his disciples began to see was that what looked as one day far off in the distance was actually, on closer inspection, two days separated by a period of time. That the day of salvation would come first with the offer of grace, with Christ's life perfectly lived, sinlessly on our behalf, with his death substitutionarily in place of all sinners who would bow the knee, and with his resurrection to show that his sacrifice had been accepted by God. That day of salvation had come. And what John is now looking at is saying, friends, we are in the final hours of that day. And in the final hours of that day, many will come and challenge the message of salvation. And we must hold fast to it because the day that follows this one is the day of judgment. That is what John is getting at as he speaks to these last hours. He speaks prophetically about what we will encounter in the next era. And so John looks around, and he sees signs, and he gives one piece of evidence that we are indeed in the final hours of that day of salvation. And this is the second thing we encounter. The Antichrist and Antichrists. And the and is important there. It's not Antichrist or Antichrists. John actually seems, uh, he seems to affirm the fact that there is coming a singular, capital A Antichrist who will lead the world astray. But right now, in this letter, he is less concerned with that figure. He puts him on the back burner. That can wait until the book of Revelation. The Antichrist he is concerned with now is actually not some globalist elite world leader, but rather somebody each of us has likely encountered. The Antichrist he is concerned right now is not one, but many. Who are the antichrists well that's relatively simple. John 1 John 2:22 through 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist, the one who denies the father and the son. The one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. So he says that the the mark of an Antichrist is, what does he say about Jesus? But before he tells us that, he gives us what I think is a much more interesting aspect of who this is. He tells us this, the Antichrists John is concerned with are those who were once among us. Verses 18 and 19, children, it is the last hour. As you have heard the, that antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us but they were not of us. I think that sentence should be striking to us because we live in a time in which the religious landscape of America and in fact the entire western world is changing. Those who study it refer to right now as the great de-churching. The Great Dechurching is a religious uh, shift in particularly America on scale with what was called the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, for those that don't know church history, that's fine. It was a point in uh, the the pre-revolutionary period in America, so before America had separated from England— And there were many churches, they were full to the rafters with people, but many of them were either not actually converted, they were simply culturally Christian, or they were sleepy Christians who, because of the entropy of their lives, had simply not pursued discipleship. And in a period of time... The Holy Spirit on multiple locations in America descended on these churches through the normal means of grace, through people's Bible readings, through people's prayer lives, through pastors getting up and giving sermons, through churches gathering together. The Holy Spirit descended in such a way in which all the normal things Christians do had a magnified impact. And many who had given their lives to Christ but whose discipleship had fallen into disarray woke up. They saw the importance of following Christ, of dedicating each and every day to him, and they fervently pursued him. And many who realized that they were simply going to church because that was the hum-drum rhythm of their lives, but they had never actually bowed the knee to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had the revelation that they needed to surrender. And many who were not Christians were saved. That is the Great Awakening, and today we are experiencing a similar cataclysmic change in the American church, but it is headed in the opposite direction. Many are leaving the church, and these are the ones that John is concerned about. He's not first and foremost concerned about those who would bring political persecution from the Roman Empire, though he experienced that. He's not first and foremost concerned with pagan or secular intellectuals, though there were plenty of those in his day as in ours. John is most concerned with those who have left the faith and deny Christ. And just like the original readers of the letter, we live in such a time. And so I want to recognize a couple of things about our great de-churching moment so that we can properly hear and apply this text from John. So here are three things about this moment of de-churching. The first thing that we should note about it is that not everyone who is leaving the church is leaving the faith. And so we should not treat all those who might be called de-churchers as antichrists. It might be helpful, in fact, to break those who are leaving the church down into three different categories. The first category we could call those who doubt. In a sense, this encompasses all of us because every single one of us, if we still struggle with sin, which First John told us earlier that we still struggle with sin, sin comes from a place of lack of belief. And lack of belief is what? Doubt. But there are those who their predominant feeling towards Scripture, towards God, towards their understanding of significance in the church is one of doubt and questioning. They might be part of the church in some social way, but in a sense, they sit on the fringes of the church, concerned to enter further in because they just are not sure. And I want you to know, if you do not consider yourself a doubter in that way, let me say this about those who doubt. No sociological or theological study has ever found a connection between doubt and those who walk away from the faith. The clear connection that is found when you study it deeply is that there is a connection between unexpressed doubt, the doubts we harbor deep inside and don't tell anybody about, unexpressed doubt, and leaving the faith. Which is why, if you, uh, whether you struggle with doubt or don't struggle with doubt, this is what I want to tell you about Journey Church. Pastor Jim, the elders, myself, and our staff strive with great effort to make this church a place where you can doubt. And here's what I mean by that. We want to be a place of such robust understanding of God's word. We want to be a place that takes God's word and theology so seriously, and that we can strive for certainty as Christians who have been walking with Jesus for a while. We want to do that so that our certainty provides the level of confidence that others need to hear doubt. Because the thing that kills faith is not doubt, but that doubt which gets unexpressed. That doubt that we harbor inside. And so please hear me say, if you do doubt, I hope that this is a safe place for you. I would say my office door is always open to you, but there's a keypad on it, and it locks automatically when I close it. But usually, my office door is always open to you. I am fine with your doubts because I am certain in what I believe and I believe God is big enough to handle whatever it is that you struggle to believe. The second group of people, these people actually have left the church. Doubters might not have. These people actually have. We could call them the de-churched, and they break down into two categories. There are the de-churched who we might call uh, casually de-churched, and there are the de-churched we might call intentionally de-churched. The casually de-churched are those who have walked away from the church in a sense by accident the entropy of their lives has brought has made coming to church harder and harder until finally they just stopped coming usually there's some sort of break point thing that happens in which tips them over the edge maybe a new job which has a different schedule or a change of location moving for college moving for the military moving because you finished college moving from where you were living back home to take care of an aging parent. All these transition points can end up being a break point in which we casually fall out of our church participation and attendance. Kids' sports and other school activities can do so, or just the general feeling of weariness after week after week of trying to get through a troubling and trying world. The thing about the casually dechurched is that they did not leave the church intentionally, but they will need to intentionally come back to the church. And for those of you that are here, I assume that you are not casually de-churched. Why? Because then you wouldn't be here. But here's what you need to know about them. In studies on the de-churched, 100% of them say if they were invited by a close friend or family member, they would be sitting in one of the seats next to you. 100% of them say all they need is an invitation to come back. And I ask you then to invite those in your life who are casually dechurched, not because, quite frankly, I care about the number of, jur- of members of Journey Church, but more so because I actually believe right now amongst us, as I am talking, as you are listening, as all of us together are open to God's word, the Holy Spirit is working to form our hearts. And it's because he promised to do so in Scripture. And when we take ourselves away from the fellowship of believers, we lose that formative thing that the Holy Spirit is working amongst us right now. The second group of de-churches, the intentionally de-churched, often cases these people felt abused, offended, or wronged in some way. You and I could talk about them individually, and, and we could adjudicate whether you or I thinks that they're abuse, offense, Wronging, whether it's legitimate or not, but the fact of the matter is that many of them feel that they have been wronged or offended. They will not be likely to return to a church unless they come across one where they feel safe. In many ways, that's outside of our hands. Their offense might be simply because the gospel itself is a stumbling block, or their offense might be because some associate pastor shoots his mouth off while he's preaching. And one of those is legitimate, and one of them isn't. I'll leave it to you to decide. But here's what we need to know. We need to know that there are some out there who can benefit from being here. They believe, but they are languishing spiritually because they are apart from God's body, from Christ's body. And if you are in the place where you are one foot out the door and you might become de because of something that's happened here or something that's been said to you at some point, let me give you two things I think you should think about if you're going to leave church. Because I will admit, I think there's a legitimate reason to not go to church for a period of time. You might have experienced some kind of abuse that makes it difficult for you to engage in this sort of context, but let me give you two things that I tell everybody I think is about to walk away from the church to do. First, find a wise, mature believer and believer in the church who knows the spiritual handicap you will undertake when you separate yourself from the body of Christ and make sure they know why you're leaving and hear their advice. And second is this, buy a calendar or open up the calendar app on your phone and circle a day, and that's the day you're going back to church. Because the way you move from intentionally de-churched to casually de-churched is you simply never make the decision to return. There is no such thing in the Bible as a lone ranger Christian. There is no Christian who is not a part of the broader community. So while I can imagine a faithful believer not feeling able to walk into this room, I cannot imagine that for a long period of time. I cannot imagine that without some kind of break point where you go, I walked away, I'm working on healing, I'm meeting with Christ, maybe I'm seeing a counselor, I'm in my scripture, I'm in prayer, but there's a day on the calendar where I will go back. Because if you don't make that decision, then there is a good chance that one day we think he or she went out from us because he or she was never of us because that is what John points to here. And that moves us from the de church to the de-converted category. It is in this category that we find the antichrists, those who have left, but not just all who have left. Those who have left the church, they have left the faith, and then some of those have become antagonistic. Not all will become this way, but there are many that do. We could name their names. Some of them do so publicly. I think of, and I almost always use the example of Bart Ehrman, a man who grew up in a church like ours, who went to a Christian college like the one I have a diploma from, who went to a seminary that rivals my seminary for people who apply to it, who went and did a PhD in the Greek New Testament and then walked away from the faith and has spent the better part of two decades writing books about why this book right here is not trustworthy. He has become an antichrist. He went out from the church, though he was never actually of the church. And that, by the way, should inform the way we think about what it means to be a Christian. Because you might think I'm a Christian because I experienced at a camp somewhere a spiritual, emotional experience and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? So did Dr. Ehrman. Well, no, no, no. I'm a Christian because I have theological understanding and a degree from a Christian institution. So did Bart Ehrman. No, no, no. I'm a Christian because I study the word. I study it deeply. Bart Ehrman has a PhD in the Greek New Testament. We have to understand what the Bible actually says about what it means to be a Christian. Stop putting our glasses on it. Stop putting our lenses on it. Stop trying to force it into our box of understanding. Otherwise, we will mistake those who have gone out from us because they need to heal, and they need a friend who loves Jesus and loves them to draw them back in, and we will mistake them for the enemy. Or vice versa, we will mistake somebody who might be an antichrist for somebody whose testimony about the church, testimony about scripture, is reliable. So that's the first thing I wanted to note about this moment of great de-churching. Here's the second thing I want to note. If not all those who have left the church are antichrists, the second thing we should note is that uh, these groups each need different things. I've already touched on this a bit. Doubters in D. Church need our friendship and our discipleship. By our discipleship, I don't necessarily mean that we disciple them. I mean they need Christians who actually pursue Christ. Robert Murray McShane, if any of you have done that Bible reading plan where you read a chapter in the Old Testament, a chapter in the New Testament, and a chapter of the Psalms, if you've done that, read through the Bible, Robert Murray McShane came up with that. It's called the McShane reading plan. He said of his people, My church's greatest need is my personal sanctification. Our D church friends and doubting friends' greatest need is our personal discipleship. As we pursue Christ, we are able to lead them in pursuing Christ as well. But what do the D converts need? Whether they are embodying the disposition of an antichrist or not, this group needs us to state the gospel clearly and to give our reasons for believing in it. There's an important caveat here. By and large, the arguments and strategies of a previous generation for evangelism and apologetics will not work with this group, and we need to come to terms with that. You see, in previous eras of the American church, when we were evangelizing people, we were evangelizing those who had not sat in these chairs, who had not heard these sorts of sermons, who had not attended Christian colleges. But in this era, when we do evangelism and apologetics, when we seek to clarify the gospel, we need to understand that they have experienced all of these things, and this is what they walked away from. We, in a sense, need to be innovative in how we proclaim the same gospel that Jesus proclaimed when he walked the earth. We need to be innovative in how we think about evangelism and evangelizing the same gospel that John writes about here. And we need to be innovative in how we do our apologetics just as the martyrs innovated in the first century. And I would just say from my experience in sharing the gospel and doing apologetics— the primary thing we need to innovate is letting go of cookie-cutter arguments and starting to build meaningful relationships we need to engage in meaningful relationships that allow people to see that we in fact live out what we believe That people come over to our houses and they see that you raise your kids differently because you believe as a father that you are a conduit to what your children will believe about the Heavenly Father. They need to see wives submitting to husbands, not because men are better than women, but because God said that men are designed to lead the church and the home. They need to see people who sacrificially love one another. I experienced this. I won't say who it is because I didn't ask them if I could, and it's not in my notes, but this week, uh, we had a little medical scare in my house and my wife and I had to go to the ER and, in, and from 5 p.m. to 2 a.m., two of our friends from this church sat at my house to make sure my kids ate dinner and got to bed. You see, we need those who have walked away from the church to actually see that we, friends, believe what we say we believe because the things that get platformed and bullhorned and come through the megaphones of the Wall Street Journal and the Atlantic and the New York Times about what Christians and pastors do are almost always messages of where we fail. And we do fail because we are not perfect. But we need to show people that we are striving each and every day to walk closer with Christ. And the only way that will happen is if we invite people into our lives. If we live faithfully in front of them, with hospitality and kindness. And you can do that, by the way, because here's one thing that you need to know about those who often walk away from the church and the faith. The vast majority who walk away don't walk away because of an intellectual argument that you might not feel prepared to answer. The vast majority who walk away walk away because of a feeling of anger or anxiety. And here's the thing. If you know Jesus Christ and are full of the Holy Spirit, you know what you have according to the scriptures? A peace that surpasses all understanding. You have the answer for their anger and anxiety even if you don't have the answer for their cosmological argument about why they don't think God can exist or about their problem of evil. There's so much I would like to say here, but I just don't have a ton of time left. So let me say this, if you want to know what it looks like to minister to those who have walked away from the church and the faith, all you need to do is, this would be your homework for this week, open up the Gospel of Mark and read it from chapter 1 to chapter 16, and what you will encounter is Christ again and again modeling what it looks like in compassion, love, and truth to encounter those who have walked away or have been left on the outside. You'll see Christ with a man with a withered hand, Christ interacting with a man possessed by an army of demons, Christ being touched by a woman and ministering to a woman who was ritually unclean because of chronic bleeding, Christ interacting with those who would be racially outcast, Christ interacting with those who are blind, leprous, or lame, which in their day would have been presumed to be because of some kind of sin that them, their father, or their grandfather committed, and Christ, even interacting with a criminal, nailed to a cross next to him, telling him, I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise." You see, we could consider all of these stories, and each one of us probably has one of a similar manner. And each one of them is of Christ interacting with somebody who's hurt, anxious, and angry. And Christ ministering to them in the midst of that, not first and foremost with intellectual arguments, which, again, I'm getting a PhD. I believe in intellectual arguments. But in this era, It will likely be relationships that pushes the gospel forward. Which means, friends, we need to make space in our lives. My guess is the biggest hindrance to our evangelism is our busyness. The third thing we need to think about in this cultural moment is those who leave might never have been among us in the first place. That's what John says here. And I want to be careful with that Because statistically, every single one of us in here knows somebody who has walked away from the church or walked away from the faith, or both. They might be our closest relations. They might have grown up in our homes. They may be our children, our friends, or our siblings. And here's what I don't want you to hear, because here's where we accidentally do a weird thing when we read the Bible. We tend to hear something a strong truth, and we make it into something universal about somebody else. So we say something like, Scripture teaches that wives are to submit to their husbands, and you say something like, so you're saying that the Bible promotes abuse. No, I didn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Scripture teaches that God is sovereign over the human heart, so you're saying that people don't have freedom. No, I didn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. So you're saying that somebody who walked away from the faith is lost and they were never of us and they're condemned to hell. No, I didn't say that and the Bible didn't say that because here's the thing. We need to understand who's lost, but we should never, when seeking to understand that, forget how we position ourselves towards the lost. Friends, how do we position ourselves towards the lost? Do we shun them and turn our back on them? No, that has never been the message of Journey Church. That has never been the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is when we think somebody is lost and when somebody does not have faith in Jesus Christ, we pursue them in love. Because why? Some who left and were never among us still have the opportunity to hear. They may be spiritually lost, but they are not yet eternally lost. So we need to understand those who have gone out may still come in And we also need to understand that faith is mysterious. It is not mechanical. I wish I could say uh, that in ramping up our discipling ministries, we are building structures and curating content that will guarantee no deconversion takes place at Journey. But the fact of the matter is that that's just not possible. It's not possible as a parent in your homes to make sure that your kids walk in the faith. Why do I believe that? Jesus had 12, he lost one. Judas still deconverted. Paul had a man with him on his missionary journeys named Demas who walked away. In love with the present world, is what it says of him. We cannot guarantee these things, but we can build meaningful friendships. We can be fervent in our prayers and we can seek opportunities to share the gospel. And let me retouch the thesis one more time before I pray and we sing again. I think what we can say about this passage then is this. It means that the last hour and the presence of antichrists call us to an earnest and intentional pursuit of learning from, loving like, and living for Jesus. John, after presenting the background context of discipleship and the Antichrist in the last hour and these things that might reel us with anxiety, fill us with anticipation of what is coming. John then twists the lens again and puts discipleship back in context. In verses 20 and 21, you have been anointed with the Holy One. You all have knowledge I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth and know lies of the truth. Verses 24 through 27. Let what you heard from the beginning, open parentheses, the gospel of Jesus Christ, close parentheses, abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father and that and this promise that he has given you eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. You see, John pivots at the end of the section back to discipleship. And in his pivot, he tells us to remember the gospel, to abide in the Father through the Son, and to hold fast to scriptural truth. All of those he has said many times over in the previous six sections of this letter, but here he adds one more thing. The Holy Spirit. All Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is why you cannot lose your salvation because you cannot lose the Spirit. The Spirit dwelling in us is what makes it possible for us to abide in Christ, and the Spirit is, in fact, a person of God. If this is a new concept for you, we here at Journey Church believe in the Trinity, which is that we believe in one holy, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God that is comprised of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of them equally and eternally, always has been, always will be God. And what it means that the Holy Spirit is a person of God, the reason why I share that with you is because if he is God and he is a person, then you can have relationship with him. And I would say what John is getting at is that our certainty and our clinging, our understanding of the gospel that keeps us from leaving the faith and leaving the church is this. What is the quality of your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Do you know the Spirit that indwells you? Because in growing and knowing Him, relationally knowing him, you will find greater assurance. When John says you have no need for anyone to teach you anything, I don't think he means literally you know everything about the faith. After all, he's just written a letter that takes five pages in my Bible to teach you things, to teach me things. He obviously believes we still need to learn, but he believes that our assurance is not anchored in our learning, but in the indwelling of the Spirit. At the end of my sermon, I have started to talk about the Holy Spirit, who I have literally taught classes on. I could assign you books on the Holy Spirit. We could be here for hours. But let me tell you this. I think the most important thing for us to do is not primarily to sit and try and fill our heads with content about the Holy Spirit, but try and sing from our hearts about the Spirit. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, I'm going to invite the band back up, and we are going to learn a new-to-us song and so what I want you to do is, as after I pray and the band starts playing it, I want you to think about the words. I don't want you to immediately stand and sing, because I want you to hear the words that we are singing. I want you to think about who God is. I want you to think about your dependence upon him. And then when you are ready, if you believe what we sing— and you've picked up the tune, it's fairly easy, you picked up the tune, then please stand and join us. First, let me pray. Lord, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for our friends who have walked away from the faith for legitimate, uh, challenging reasons. Maybe they have experienced abuse. Uh, Maybe they have been wronged or offended in legitimate ways. Lord, we pray that you would be ministering to them, calling them to yourself. We pray for those who are outside the church, would you give them the sense of what they miss when they do not gather, as your word tells us to, with your people to hear your word proclaimed and to worship you together? Would we not be given to the lie of this technological age that mediation through screen and audio can take the place of being with one another? And Father, would you work in our hearts to make us a people of hospitality and discipleship that we grow in our likeness of Christ and that we are able to invite others in to see that, that they might see a faith, a belief that is attractive, that is real, and that can, in fact, be lived out by those who are filled with the Spirit. And so, Father, all of that is to say, would you give us lives that glorify your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ? We pray all of these things in his holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.